Thanks for listening to Access Utah. First off today, an email from a listener. You'll recall yesterday we talked with historian Val Hawley and uh, talked about his uh, new biography, Frank J. Cannon, Saint Senator Scoundrel. About one of the most controversial figures uh, ever born in Utah. And uh, we received this from Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. Uh, he says, Tom, when you asked Frank Cannon biographer uh, Val Hawley why Cannon deserves to emerge from obscurity, Mr. Hawley cited his many amazing achievements. Let me offer a second reason. Cannon led one fascinating life. Thanks for that, Steve. Appreciate it. And uh, now uh, conversations with Eli Saslow and Tara McPherson. This program was first broadcast in March. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Derek Black grew up at the epicenter of white nationalism. His father founded Stormfront, the largest racist community on the Internet. His godfather, David Duke, was a KKK Grand Wizard. By the time Derek turned 19, he had become an elected politician with his own daily radio show, already regarded as the leading light of the burgeoning white nationalist movement. Then he went to college, and at New College of Florida, he continued to broadcast his radio show in secret each morning, living a double life, until a classmate uncovered his identity. The ensuing uproar overtook one of the most liberal colleges in the country. Some students protested Derek's presence on campus, forcing him to reconcile for the first time with the ugliness of his beliefs. Other students found the courage to reach out to him, including an Orthodox Jew who invited Derek to attend weekly Shabbat dinners. It was because of those dinners and the wide-ranging relationships formed at that table that Derek started to question the science, history, and prejudices behind his worldview. As white nationalism infiltrated the political mainstream, Derek decided to confront the damage he, has do he had done. The book Rising Out of Hatred tells the story of how to white supremacist ideas migrated from the far-right fringe to the White House uh, through the intensely personal saga of one man who eventually disavowed everything he was taught to believe at tremendous personal cost. The author, Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post reporter Eli Saslow, asks what Derek Black's story can tell us about America's increasingly divided nature. We are going to be talking with Eli Saslow on the program today. Uh, later in this hour, we'll be continuing this discussion with USC professor Tara McPherson. A while back, she gave a lecture at USU titled Platforming Hate, the Internet and the Rise of Hate Online. Right now, my conversation with Eli Saslow. How did you get connected with uh, Derek Black? How did you get connected with his story with him? Sure. So I, I write longer pieces for the Washington Post, and, and unfortunately in that job, uh, over the last five years or so, it's, it's often meant writing about, um, you know, kind of the, the impacts of white supremacy on, on our current moment in the United States, whether that's, uh, you know, sometimes policing and, and writing about Black Lives Matter and, and what's happening there, or, or the immigration debates in our country. Um, and it's also meant going to an increasing number of, of mass shootings, um, sometimes perpetuated by, you know, sort of white, white nationalist terrorists, basically people who've radicalized online and, and have decided, um, you know, to, to start to try to start a race war by going into a, a place and shooting a bunch of people. That's that's happened at you know at a synagogue in Pittsburgh uh, recently at a at a uh, historically black church in Charleston. Um, you know, at a bunch of places. And, and at one of those shootings, uh, I'd been sent to cover it for the Washington Post, and I learned that the shooter at the at the shooting in Charleston um, had radicalized mostly on this website called Stormfront, uh, which I, I didn't know very much about, but um, quickly found out that it's the largest 
white supremacist website in the world and has been for the last 20 years. Um, so I, I went on to this website to, to learn about the shooter, Dylan Roof, and, and what he'd been reading. Um, and just by sheer coincidence, on, on that website on that day, I, I saw a massive message thread about somebody else, somebody named Derek Black, who was the son of the founder of Stormfront. He was uh, the, the godson of David Duke, who had run the KKK in the United States. Um, and Derek had been sort of the young leader of this white supremacist movement. Um, and just at this moment, on, on this message thread, he had sent a letter to, uh, to everybody on the message thread and also to the Southern Poverty Law Center saying that he had made colossal mistakes in his life and he was going to change his name, disappear, and, and to, to spend his life trying to fight back against the white supremacy he'd been working to, to spread. So uh, at that point, I also tried to start finding him, too, so I could figure out uh, what and how um, his mind had, had changed. So uh, he's a true believer, right? Raised in this, as you mentioned, David Dukes, his godfather. Uh, what affected the change? Uh, I uh, reading he went to college, and uh, somebody, and he was reading. He was leading kind of a double life, right? And then somebody outed him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so yeah, he was absolutely a true believer. I mean, he was sort of raised within this very uh, cocooned world of, of white nationalism. I mean, Derek grew up going to, to white nationalist conferences. You know, he was surrounded by skinheads, Klansmen, uh, you know, people like this all the time. And, and Derek disastrously, you know, he invested himself in, in all of their ideas and, and, and worked hard to grow these ideas. I mean, when he was 16 years old, he started a, a 24-hour white supremacist radio network. He, he ran for public office in Florida when he was 19 um, and won, won a seat on the, on the county's uh, Republican commission, um, you know, with, with, his, with his platform. Uh, you know, he, he, he'd done a lot, of, a lot of work as the main, main speaker at these white nationalist conferences, and it wasn't until um, he got into college a little bit later in life, after going to community college for a while, that he, he left this sort of um, you know bubble of white nationalism for the first time. You know, he he got into the kind of uh, the best school and the cheapest school he could he could afford. It was a place called the New College of Florida, and and when the students at this campus discovered who Derek was about a year into his time at college, and the campus uh, sort of exploded in in a massive debate about uh, what to do, like how the students could go about um, either confronting or, or um, conversing with Derek um, in an effort to you know, silence some of his, his racist ideas um, and, and possibly even change his mind. So really, it was the sustained work that happened on that college campus over the course of three years um, with some groups of students who, who, who pushed to ostracize Derek, who, who flipped him off when he walked across the campus quad who worked really hard to make him feel uncomfortable, um, and another group of students who, who also, through their sort of sustained and I think um, heroic work, decided that they were going to start uh, talking to him, and, and even even including people of color or Jewish students on campus who'd often been the victims of, of these atrocious ideas um, that Derek had been sharing, they decided that they were going to invite him over to their, to their dorms, to their apartments, and start having conversations with him about his beliefs in an effort to build relationships with him and hoping that those relationships with students of color, with Jewish students on campus, might be transformative and, and might begin to challenge some of his ideas um, about, you know, white superiority and, and all of these, these awful racial myths he'd been spreading. 
Uh, this included this uh, engagement work included an Orthodox Jew, I believe, invited Derek over to attend weekly Shabbat uh, dinners. Uh, so, th- so you say both. Um, I guess both methods: um, protests, right, confrontation. On the other hand, engagement. And I wonder, uh, looking at this writ larger, what uh, what's more effective? Yeah, it's a great and I think really important question for for where we are right now as a country because, you know, sometimes um, particularly now there's there's sort of this uh, there's a real fissure between those two strategies like like uh, we talk about sort of cancel culture and, and confrontation and, and um, you know and then we talk about uh, like invitation and and reaching out to people and trying um, from like a place of of you know, of love to change people's minds and, and change the way they think about the world. Um, and the truth is, you know, I don't think that it's it's one or the other. Um, certainly in the case of, of Derek's transformation, what was required was both. Uh, the students on campus who made Derek feel uncomfortable, who, who dropped out of classes if he was in them, um, they, they did something really important. They made him feel vulnerable for, for the first time. And they also protected the campus as, as a, a safe and inclusive space for, for students of color and for Jewish students who had very good reason to feel afraid of, of Derek and, and of his presence there. So, you know, I think that kind of, um, you know, protest, that kind of confrontation can be really effective and powerful. Um, I also think if that's the only thing that had happened at, at New College of Florida, Derek would have probably unenrolled, um, gone somewhere else, gone to another school, still as, as a white nationalist, very much devoted to his racist beliefs, and, and would have continued to be the young leader in this movement. Um, but instead, the second piece that happened was, was like you said, these you know sometimes Orthodox Jewish students who began to form relationships with Derek, and and who you know not just through one difficult conversation, but through you know two or three years of of working slowly to tell their own stories to Derek, to to debate these issues with him, and who took on like the huge amount of labor of that of that work, uh, but who successfully began to push back against all the stereotypes that Derek had about about people who are different from him um, and who look different from him and, and who ultimately sort of undid um, so much of, of this uh, thinking in his mind until Derek had to confront the very basic question of whether or not he believed any of this stuff anymore or, or whether it was just his relationships with his family and people in this world that was holding him to these um, really grotesque beliefs. How did he make that change? This it was very ingrained, right? He grew up with this. It's the family business. There's a lot at stake. Um, but over process of time, he did change his thinking. How how did that happen? What what does he say? I, I think you know part of it is because um, he is is naturally naturally really curious, uh, really smart. Um, unfortunately, you know I think we we comfort ourselves sometimes by thinking that people who are racist uh, can, cannot be um, intellectually curious or smart, and when that's not the truth. I mean, uh, you know, a huge part of the, the white nationalist movement um, is, is, you know, takes place at academic conferences uh, at, at major institutions around the country. So Derek was not unusual for being smart as a white nationalist, but it meant that when, when these other students began to present him with better data uh, with, with, for instance, Derek believed that there were IQ differentials between between races, which is not true. Um, and, and these students had much better data and studies showing him all the ways that this wasn't true. Uh, you know, Derek had built a lot of his ideology on false science. And, and once the students began sending him this information, and once he trusted those students enough 
to open the information and look at it, um, he was smart enough to see that, that what they were telling him was true. I, I think the harder thing um, for him was then deciding that, that the only fundamentally decent thing to do, not, not, not necessarily the courageous thing to do, but the only decent thing to do was to, to become publicly anti-racist and, and to distance himself from, from this movement, which he knew was going to mean ending his relationship with his family, um, with his parents, who, who he loved, um, and, and, and sort of detaching himself permanently from everything about the first 22 years of his life. Um, so I think you know, that, that ultimate decision uh, for Derek took a lot of time, um, you know, and, and he knew that, that he was going to be putting himself at, at some you know, personal risk of also becoming a traitor to this movement. So you know, he, he took some precautions and, and changed his name and moved across the country before, before committing that final, that final act of, of deciding to fight back against it. I want to ask about um, President Trump's, uh, I don't know what the word would be, uh, at least at least acknowledgement, right? Um, embrace might be a strong word, but um, what is the effect, do you think, of four years of the White House acknowledging uh, some of these groups and some of this ideology in a way that uh, perhaps, at least at the White House level, has, has not we've not seen before? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it's been really toxic, right? And and um, you know, mostly, I think that that being being alive in this country at this moment, uh, we we're, we have so many signs around us that um, you know, white white supremacy uh, as, as a structure of power and and white nationalism as as an ideology is uh, is frighteningly alive and well. You know, and, and even in terms of just looking at what happened at the Capitol at, at the beginning of January. Um, you know, but I think it's uh, President Trump, certainly uh, through, through some oftentimes, uh, you know, racially coded language and dog whistling and, and um, you know, and, and some things like that, did a lot to grow, uh, you know, some, some white supremacist ideology in the country. But the truth is, you know, this problem in America and, and in our history is so much bigger and, and so much more powerful than than one person in the Oval Office, um, and, and we'd be kidding ourselves by by saying that you know just just because the president has changed, these problems have have gone away. And the truth is that that you know polls in, in America consistently show that about 35 percent of white people in the country believe that they suffer more prejudice, they deal with more discrimination than people of color or Jews, and that is that is. False. It's, there's nothing about that that is correct. But the fact that that much false white grievance continues to exist in America in this moment gives these racist ideas real mainstream power when they're when they're marketed in a way and when they're talked about in a way that sort of scrubs the the language of of, of this movement from its very real history of bloodshed. And you know, and and white supremacy is part and parcel of of what the United States. Is and has been. It's it's uh, it's like the fundamental ideology um, of, of a large part of our country's history. And and I think the first thing that we all need to do is acknowledge that this is a part of us. It's a part of who we are, and and we need to be honest about it in order to then fight back against it. Because you know, unlike other terrorist movements in the United States, um, white supremacy is not an outside threat. It, it's it's something that is inherent within us, um, and and I think that makes it much harder to counteract. Just have about a minute or so left uh, in in our conversation. I just wondered uh, expand on that. How do we overcome this? Uh, how do we confront, counteract, engage with, um, convert people away from white nationalism? How, how do we how do we best solve this? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it 
first, the first choice, and, and it's the choice that all of the students on that new college campus made, um, is to make the decision to, to move from sort of a, a place of passivity to uh, to engagement, to do something. I mean, to, to for all of us to decide, you know, um, that, that in order to counteract uh, these ideas in the United States, we have to be active, and, and we have to become actively anti-racist. And, and then I think the second thing is, what exactly we do depends on the person or the idea or the institution that we're trying to change. So, you know, if, if you're if you're working to uh, you know to, to to change something or someone who's not going to listen to you, who's not going to sit down and have a conversation with you at the dinner table, um, who you might only have one moment in time at a protest or or at an event to signal that their their racist idea or or their racist institution um, is a problem, then you should you should signal that however you can. If if that's um, protesting, if that's uh, if that's you know saying something in public that that um, that that an institution is doing something that's harmful, then I think you should do it. That's important, um, and and it it establishes like the community's values. Um, but but. I would say if the if the person that you're trying to change is somebody that you know and that might listen to you, um, then then it's all of our responsibility to have those sometimes really difficult conversations. And the truth is, for a lot of us, um, particularly for those of us who are white, these ideas are all around us. If 35 percent of white people in the country believe that they're experiencing more discrimination than people of color, like for me, in in, in my instance. There are people like that in my own extended family, um, and they they don't think of themselves as racist. They would be super offended if I told them that they were racist. But I know that some of the things that they believe and um, some of their ideas are based on racist and dangerous ideas. Um, and if there are people that I care about and if there are people that care about me, I think it's my responsibility to have the courage to, to have those conversations, even knowing that they're going to be painful and, and they might be difficult. And I think it's it's some of the essential work of our moment to take those conversations on. Well, we thank you so much for, for taking some time uh, to be with us. I appreciate it a lot. It's my, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time to think about this stuff. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, that's my conversation with Eli Saslow. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post reporter, and his book is titled... Rising Out of Hatred, uh, the uh, subtitle of the book, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist, the uh, story of uh, white supremacist uh, Derek Black, who had a uh, change of heart, now uh, tries to counteract uh, his former ideology. And, of course, we talked about how Derek Black's story uh, has some lessons for the nation as a whole in our divided times we're going to continue this subject. We will be talking with University of Southern California professor Tara McPherson after the break. She gave a lecture a while back at Utah State University titled Platforming Hate, the Internet and the Rise of Hate Online. And we'll have that following this break. Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. Support also comes from Cache Valley Center for the Arts, hosting the Downtown Logan Gallery Walk on July 9th from 6 to 9 p.m. The one-night event includes nine downtown businesses and will feature artwork of over 100 local artists. Information at cashearts.org slash gallerywalk. 
UPR congratulates the Cash Celebration of Women's Suffrage, recipient of the prestigious 2021 Albert B. Quarry Award by the American Association for State and Local History, recognizing volunteer organizations that best display the qualities of vigor, scholarship, and imagination in their work. Utah Public Radio was part of the Cash Celebration of Women's Suffrage Committee that created a traveling exhibit to commemorate three significant milestones, 1870 when a Utah woman was the first to vote in the modern nation under an equal suffrage law, 1920 when the 19th Amendment was passed and prohibited voting discrimination on the basis of sex, and 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was passed which prohibits racial discrimination in voting. Congratulations to the many groups and individuals who helped with the cash celebration of women's suffrage. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast earlier this year in March. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our thanks to Washington Post reporter Eli Saslow for giving us uh, that uh, time for a uh, conversation. Recorded that yesterday uh, uh, on his new book, or his latest book, Rising Out of Hatred. We're going to continue in this theme uh, bringing you a portion of a conversation with uh, University of Southern California Professor Tara McPherson. In 2019, uh, she gave a lecture at USU titled Platforming Hate, the Internet and the Rise of Hate Online. In that talk, she examined the ways in which platforms like Discord, Reddit, YouTube, and Facebook are used by various groups to spread hate and white supremacy both on and offline. And she detailed the active recruitment of white teenage boys in online environments and considered the relationship of these more recent developments to the early digital presence of neo-Confederates on the web more than 20 years ago. And she argued that the Internet has changed in key ways that help support the spread of white supremacy uh, online. So here's a portion of my conversation from 2019 with USC professor Tara McPherson. I was reading a couple of articles at the Southern uh, Poverty Law Center. Mm. Um, I, I, I've been, I, I guess, blissfully unaware of some of this. Um, just hear it in headlines and such. I haven't, and and I, I spent an hour and dipped a toe in. Right, you, I'm sure you 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 have a much more. You've immersed yourself, um, but it's it's vitriolic. Yeah. So, yeah. Some of the some of the at least the language. Yes, a lot Out of it's and- very ugly. It has it takes many forms. I think several of the well-organized groups that the Southern Poverty Law Center classifies as hate groups ha- operate on multiple levels. So one dimension of their recruitment um, soft sells the hate and and racism and misogyny in order to recruit. And then if you follow it more into its leadership and depths, it's definitely amplified. So um, the progress I'm making on writing this book is not speedy. And part of it's because it's very um, demoralizing work to do to kind of recognize the depth of um, hatred, of um, plans that are being made that are terrifying, that um, of the recruitment strategies that are being aimed particularly at young white men, young white boys, to see that organization is um, 
heartbreaking, right? And, you know, I'm not naive. I have studied racism in American history for many years, and I have never imagined we lived in a country that wasn't partially founded in racism and where racism existed. But to see it so well organized and widespread and unacknowledged is, you know, something I think we really have to take seriously mm-hmm. right now. Um, and there is, uh, you know, violence against uh, minorities. Yes. Is talked about as a praiseworthy thing, right? Yes. Uh, this this uh, uh, phrase, day of the rope, for example. That when that comes, I think this that's taken from Turner, Turner Diaries, is that? Yeah, and also just a sense that you can um, claim your own um, status as a hero, uh, a kind of race warrior, by um, being brave enough to enact violence against communities of color. So in, in synagogue bombing, you know, attacks, in attacks at um, Islamic houses of worship, um, at schools, right? we're um, really seeing the consequence of language. I think some people cynically spin that language regardless of the consequence, and then others take up that consequence. You know, in most recently, I mean, you know, in the most recent cycle, I think people began to notice it with Dylan Roof, but it's just accelerated, right? And while We've lived in a country that spent, I think, you know, over a decade imagining Islamic terrorism as our greatest threat. Certainly homegrown terrorism is our greatest threat for the stability of our democracy right now. So uh, on the Internet, on social media sites, uh, there's an ongoing debate on uh, how much do you suppress this kind of speech? How much do you not? After all, free speech is a very treasured value. I just want to read this. This is from an article on the Southern Poverty Law Center talking about um, um, this this kind of ideology on these sites. Uh, Just quoting Reddit CEO Steve Huffman, known on this site, and the site they're talking about here is um, the underscore Donald. Uh, You're probably familiar with that. Get into talking about that as well. Uh, known on that site as Spez, defends the decision not to ban the underscore Donald, um, which is a subreddit, saying it is a small part of a large problem we face in this country that a large part of the population feels unheard, and the last thing we're going to do is take their voice away. And then the, uh, the writer goes on to say, however, Reddit must weigh its commitment to free speech absolutism against the potential for hate speech to cause real harm while confronting the uncomfortable truth that white nationalism is among those, quote-unquote, unheard perspectives, finding a voice on a forum that uh, has the ear of a sitting president. That's a supposition on the writer's part. And there, there's, there's speculation about whether the president reads Reddit, you know, but, uh, or someone in his administration does. But anyway, this, this, this balancing act of, of uh, how much do you suppress, how much do you not? I think the far right has done a very good job of creating a imagined crisis of free speech, particularly on college campuses, right, in order to um, safeguard their ability to spew hate speech, right? And it goes against really the actual language of the Constitution, which is quite precise. It doesn't grant free speech to everybody in every context, right? So there are many, many ways historically in communications that we 
limit and regulate speech, right? So um, you're not allowed to libel people. You're not allowed to yell fire in a movie theater. You're not allowed to show porn on broadcast television at particular times of the day. You're not allowed to do certain things in movies marketed to children. I think if we stop thinking about free speech as a binary, we have it or we don't, and we instead think about reasonable regulation that has the best chance to reduce the greatest harm, it becomes nonsensical to say we can't limit speech in any way, right? We already do. There, you know, great legal precedent. And, um, you know, we, the FCC has always been about thinking about what speech we can and cannot allow. We could also turn to the example of many other countries, which have very, um, um, staunchly and without any um, um, worry set up policies to try to understand how speech can be harmful, that it actually has consequences. It leads to things like Dylan Roof shooting up a black church, right? We know that he was on far-right websites that stoked that real-world violence. So when I go to talk about this work in Canada or Germany or Stockholm, many of the videos I would show in the U.S. to illustrate some of the groups that I'm studying won't play on YouTube in those other countries because the countries already have thought through ways to think about speech and its consequences. Um, They're democracies. They're vibrant democracies. They're democracies with often higher standards of living and happiness um, registers than the U.S. has, and yet they found ways to say this is not speech that promotes democracy in a civic realm, right? Mm. Um, It was so interesting to me the first time I went to play a video in Canada, you know, just over the border from California. And, you know, what came up on YouTube, the same company, was, you know, a banner that said this content is not appropriate. It has been removed. But the same company, YouTube, in Los Angeles allowed that video to play. So the companies have the mechanisms they need to limit speech, even though they often claim otherwise. But their bottom line benefits from having controversial and dark content. So they're not inclined in their business model to limit dark speech. Mm. Uh, Now, some companies have gone further than others. Yes. Right. Uh, You know, Twitter has banned some. And they Users, they, they come and go, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, the founder of the Southern League who I mentioned, League of the South, who I mentioned earlier, was removed from Twitter after Charlottesville. But, um, you know, people recreate accounts, um, alternate platforms like Gab develop, which was created after a bunch of people were booted off of Twitter to give them their own platform, right? So, um, you know, videos might play one year in the U.S. and then they'll temporarily go down, but other videos created by the same person with a different account will persist, right? So it's a very uneven application. I think when negative attention is focused on a company, when something horrific like a church shooting happens and it's clear that um, the perpetrator was connected to a particular website or followed a far-right speaker, that person might temporarily be banned. But 
more effective would be larger policies and broader public conversations about um, the kind of speech that's actually happening and what we might do about it. Mm-hmm. I think most people who hypothetically think free speech is a great idea might not feel so comfortable knowing that actual plans to bomb cities are happening you know, in Discord chats or in, you know, private communications on Facebook. And if the people perpetrating that speech were Islamic men, most Americans would probably say, shut them down, mm. right? But um, the, the way that free speech floats as a very abstract concept in America, I think makes it hard to connect the dots between a cherished idea and the consequences for some of the very dark, violent speech that's happening hmm. online. So your suggestion is um, maybe, you know, sh- obviously uh, there's a room for shutting uh, some of these down, but it's sort of like whack-a-mole, isn't it? You know? It is so, a will. So, uh, so making it, making uh, the speech broad, more broadly known uh, to people, and, and then... Uh, so that gets me into talking about the marketplace of ideas. The ideal is, okay, even if it's totally repugnant, you know, let that person shout that out. And, and then the, the, the cooler-headed majority will, will regulate that, in quotes, um, or sort of, I guess, shunning them or shaming them or uh, expelling them in that way from, from the marketplace of ideas. Uh, but if you have these dark corners... And we don't have a single marketplace. We have a lot of platforms operating together, sometimes intersecting at a scale that's very hard to monitor, right? When we had, you know, um, broadcast airwaves that in most cities produce three or four channels of TV, it was fairly easy to kind of, you know, think through what was acceptable, um, you know, what violated community standards, what didn't, right? And we had guidelines and ways to enforce. That's harder now. Um, What Sweden has done has been to criminalize hate speech. And it's not perfect in the Swedish system, but there are consequences to that speech. And um, they, you know, work with researchers to help identify speech in hidden places on the web. And if it's um, emerging in Swedish context, there could be legal and criminal consequences to that speech. And, you know, that's an option that I think um, is viable. You know, in um, Germany, which lives much more um, honestly, I think, with the legacy of the Holocaust and, you know, the in fairly recent history, you're not allowed to have swastikas as part of, you know, kind of public display. And, you know, you're not, um, you couldn't, um, you know, circulate them in media there. And I think in Germany, people are astounded that that symbol has become so broadly taken up in the United States. You're listening to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. And uh, we're hearing conversation uh, that had with Oh, a while back with uh, USC professor Tara McPherson. Uh, she gave a lecture uh, in 2019 at USU titled Platforming Hate, the Internet and the Rise of Hate Online. And we'll have more with Tara McPherson following this break. Next time on LA Theater Works, a young man returns home after six years only to find that no one knows who he is. 
Grandpa, look. Stop calling me Grandpa, will you? It's sickening. I'm nobody's grandpa, least of all yours. I can't believe you don't recognize me. Buried Child by Sam Shepard. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Well, we'd love to support your events on our UPR community calendar. Head to upr.org, click on the community calendar tab, and there you can find the submission link. We highlight events including workshops, theater, art shows, dances, lectures, virtual events, and more. Again, you can just go to the community calendar tab on upr.org to submit your event. Hi, I'm Natalie Gochner. I represent the Political Center. Join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW. A weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices representing the right, the center, and the left. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing residents of this state while proving that Republicans and Democrats can sit in a small room and have a meaningful conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast earlier this year in March. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, and we're talking in this part of the program today with uh, University of Southern California professor Tara McPherson. Uh, she gave a lecture at Utah State University in 2019 titled Platforming Hate, the Internet and the Rise of Hate Online. Earlier in this hour, we talked with Eli Saslow. Uh, he is a Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post reporter. And uh, his book is called Rising Out of Hatred, tells the story of Derek Black, who was raised uh, as a leading uh, member of the white nationalist movement, then had a change of heart while at college, and uh, now works to uh, confront the damage he feels that he has done. Now here is the final portion of my conversation from 2019 with USC professor Tara McPherson. I was reading about Reddit and and it, you know we established that Reddit is a, like a little more permissive than some of the some of the sites, right? But even on Reddit, uh, some subreddits have been shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, you know, I was reading about this this subreddit uh, called the Donald, um, where the, the the moderators there, and I don't understand how Reddit works, but you can you can inform me. Uh, the moderators there uh, apparently, or, or and the participants, uh, are, got a little subtler. Right to to make sure they weren't shut down, I suppose, um, and and so they're not uh, being as explicit as some of those other subreddits, uh, but the the gist is pretty clear. Yeah, I mean, I think they're. Um, I'm not. I don't feel like we should ban all mildly controversial speech, right? I think that's likely to have consequences that are unforeseen for many communities. But I think reasonable people could decide if something is meant to incite hate and that that is a responsibility of a government to protect its citizens by um, finding ways to curtail speech and planning that aims toward public harm. Yeah. So it's, it, there are no easy solutions, yeah. right? I think education has also not performed the job it should to make young men 
maybe less susceptible to being recruited to these groups. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, responsibility is um, on parents, it's on school systems to better teach American history in ways that um, help us understand how integral race and racism have been to America's constitution and um, maybe be a little less susceptible to some of the ideas that are used as kind of entry-level recruitment tactics to bringing people into the far-right fold. So um, yeah, let's, let's get into that. Uh, so it's, I guess it's white young men is where Primarily, Primarily, not exclusively, but primarily. um, I'll tell you a a kind of more personal story. I have a 17-year-old son. He's a very avid video gamer. And um, his best friend for many years was a young man in our neighborhood, probably one of the leftiest neighborhoods in America, in Los Angeles, right? And they lost touch a bit after high school, reconnected, playing games. So they were, you know, in a game together, recognized each other, were chatting, started to chat more, and um, were planning to connect and get together. And the young man said to my son, you know, but I should warn you, my friends and I, we're a little bit racist now, right? And, um, Sadly, I was not surprised given the research that I've been doing, right? But it's it's a problem that's pervasive. It's not only in Alabama. It's not only in Idaho. It's um, across the places the internet can reach, which are pretty much everywhere now. And it's a fairly articulated and planned campaign to use humor and memes and teen boy cynicism to kind of pull more young men into networks by making them feel they're under attack. Hmm. Right. Uh, so what's the vulnerability? Where where do these recruiters, um, you know, the, to be successful, there's there's got to be something in these boys, the, 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 a need that's, that's being met? I think that um, in many school systems – Young women are performing very well. Like we know in college admissions now, um, you could pretty much fill a class with women as freshman classes because for whatever reason, partially probably socialization, girls are performing as better students typically in high school now than young men, right? And for many years, men were protected against that consequence and maybe less so now. So it's not unrealistic maybe for a young boy to feel like um, he doesn't have access to everything he might have imagined he would have had access to, you know, and that creates a vulnerability. Um, Young women are less likely, I think, to tolerate humor that's sexist or racist now than they might have been in the past and may call a young man out for something that he says. And then in that kind of shamed or or hurt state, um, a young man becomes, I think, much more susceptible to be recruited into these networks. So um, I've seen material produced that's almost like a recruitment manual that gives you 
sort of entry-level jokes and memes to share. And then if you find uh, interested audience, ways to escalate the conversation, to bring, um, uh, you know, kind of recruit further into an organization's network. Um, organizations that require its members to bring in new members in order to move higher into the network themselves, right? So it's um, there are many different groups operating, but many of them understand in you know the words of you know a tweet that was just publicly available. Um, we're fighting an infotainment war. We need to you know have the best humor. We need to you know, have the best jokes, and we could use those to to win people to our side. Mm -hmm. Apparently, recruitment is going fairly well. The the numbers of hate groups are increasing. Yes, I think. And, and, you know, there's a very polarizing language coming from the White House, and, you know, many people understand um, Trump's unwillingness to say after Charlottesville call out you know um, the far right for what happened and to say they're fine people on both sides right people understand that that is a um, implicit consent to what's happening right and uh, a series of you know what we might say are dog whistles to the far right certainly if you follow many of the reddit and twitter streams for far right figureheads they understand trump's language that way even if trump denies that his language has that effect mm. what are the uh, what are the concerns of these white supremacists Groups. Um, what, for example, one phrase that I, I was seeing is um, "white genocide." Yes, there's definitely a perception that whiteness is under threat. That um, uh, attention to historically marginalized peoples then necessarily diminishes or threatens whiteness. So it's a a view of sort of life as a pie. And if, you know, um, African-Americans and Latinx folks are getting more, whites must be getting less. I mean, I think that's a um, naive way to view the world. It's not necessarily a zero-sum game. But the fear of that in times when we see you know, real economic inequality that affects whites as well as everybody else, right? People um, are susceptible to that argument, like the the idea that somehow immigrants have taken jobs or that um, your child is not getting into, you know, um, Georgetown because African-American students are getting in unfairly, even though we know statistically that being white is your best bet for getting into any of those college, you know, top 50 colleges, even um, with everything else being equal, right? So the the perception that whiteness is somehow under attack is real, you know, um, even if it's inaccurate, right? So I, the Confederate monuments were a good example of that. The perception that um, bringing down a statue of Robert E. Lee in New Orleans would um, diminish white history, right? Rather than uh, awareness that that statue was put up 
to curtail the movements and freedom of African Americans, right? It, it was not really put up as a statue to white heritage. It was erected, um, you know, almost all the Confederate monuments went up during the rise of the Klan after Reconstruction and during the Civil Rights Movement. They were messages, right? And um, they weren't put up you know, there's no place, you know, like you don't go to Germany and see monuments to Hitler, right? You know, those came down after he lost a war, right? And um, the notion that to honor whites in the South, you must honor a failed confederacy, you know, which destabilized the nation and lost a war is an odd idea, right? But it gets mobilized very well by the far right to um, accelerate white anxiety. Mm-hmm. We just have about a, a couple of minutes left. I, I want to go back to um, you know your research for the book, and it proceeds slowly in part because it's it's pretty hard sledding yeah. reading through some of this stuff. Um, and this anecdote about your your son and his friends. Uh, how do we counteract this? I think the, the vast majority of people listening would say that these ideas need to be counteracted. They're they're harmful. How how do we go about that? Absolutely, and that's one of the things that I think is the most pressing issue for, you know, scholars to grapple with because, you know, typically part of the function of scholarship is to explain and give a context and history to ideas and not so much to intervene in that, you know, space. But I feel like we're at a really critical inflection point where ethically we're obligated to intervene. So I think there are a number of different possibilities we might think about right now. I've been looking at a number of YouTube producers who are consciously countering the ideas of um, uh, the far right. One is a performer um, whose channel is called called ContraPoint, and they're very humorous um, deconstructions of the ideas of the far right. And they garner a wide viewership and they circulate in the same ecosystem as a lot of the very kind of hate-filled far right videos. So I'm, you know, interested in how we might produce counter media that offers up different ideas, but offers it up not like a scoldy professor um, or in a very didactic way, but in the register of YouTube's modes of expression. So, you know, kind of funny, um, viral video that could intervene in that kind of ecosystem. I also think it's important that parents who imagine their child would never be um, pulled into these networks of racism um, recognize that there actually is a very real threat and have very direct and honest conversations with their children about that possibility from a young age because it's much harder to – you know, kind of have that conversation with a 15-year-old than it is, I think, with an eight-year-old, right? And, um, you know, I always grew up hearing, um, you know, well, you learn racism at home, right? And I think um, you do. But now a whole generation of young men are learning it through their headsets um, with parents who may be oblivious that it's even happening. And parents need to be aware. I'm not saying you should ban your kids from video games or, you know, that they shouldn't have access to media. But you should be having conversations with them about what they're hearing. You um, should provide, if it's not in their school curriculum, um, material that helps them understand points of view that um, exceed a white 
white world, right? And give them the grounds to have a knowledge base and to have heard other voices that could help them resist the whispering voices in their ear, in their headsets. Well, we'll uh, we're out of time. We'll, we'll leave it there on that, on that hopeful note. Um, uh, so uh, thank you very much. Thank you. That's from a 2019 conversation with USC professor Tara McPherson. And thank you so much for listening to Access Utah today. I wanted to uh, direct you to our program for Thursday. should be an exciting uh, episode of Access Utah. Uh, as you know, uh, NPR started in 1971. That means this year it turns 50. Hard to believe. Uh, and from those uh, turbulent beginnings in 1971, uh, now NPR, very established a name. UPR has been with uh, NPR, uh, I believe, from the beginning. And uh, so we're going to celebrate. We're going to look uh, behind and look ahead on Access Utah on Thursday. We'll have uh, former NPR correspondent uh, Corey Flintoff with us. We'll, we'll have uh, several other guests. And we hope to have you. You can call in. Or email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'd love to have your most memorable moment from NPR or UPR uh, history and uh, have you look ahead as well. So that's the program for Thursday. You can call in during the program. You can get us your uh, favorite memory right now to upraxcess at gmail.com. And we'll get that on the air on Thursday. And thank you. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org. This week on The Splendid Table, we take your cooking questions with the always effervescent Carla Hall. She goes hard on grilling, we get some great cookout sides, and she digs into her bag of catering tricks to tell us how to make deviled eggs for any occasion. All that and much more this week on The Splendid Table. Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio, 105.7.